From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, let's test the voice. I'm, I'm sensing a little Tom Waits. He's coming through. I hope not. I hope this is not the beginning of something. i got to tell you, it's been a bit of a rough two weeks in the, uh, the Serrett household, the mighty Aphrodite. Just now, getting back on her feet, she was laid up for eight days plus with excruciating headaches, and she doesn't suffer from migraines. For those of you who do, you know what I'm talking about. I mean, they're, they're debilitating. She didn't. She doesn't have migraines, but she had uh, a constant headache, and finally, after uh, not, it did not subside uh, for three days, Tylenol wouldn't help, so I took her to the doctor, and uh, they did a throat swab, and it uh, gave her a script for some antibiotics, but they really weren't sure what it was. The, uh, the headaches continued, and uh, after the throat swab, they uh, they called her back and said, it's not strep throat. What you had was aseptic meningitis. Aseptic meningitis. I'd never heard of aseptic meningitis. But thankfully, it's not the the deadly, potentially deadly bacterial form. It's uh, it's a viral form. And, and uh, many of you out there, you know, th- uh, this has been a tough winter. Uh, just all sorts of things uh, coming down the pipe. Uh, not your normal strains of flu and, and different types of viruses and so forth, but uh, thankfully, thank God, uh, the mighty Aphrodite is on the mend. And uh, that was not fun. Imagine uh, just eight days of constant headaches and just uh, throwing back the uh, the Advil like Pez. Uh, uh, so she's she's much better, and, and uh, I'm I'm thankful for that. Uh, but now I started I'm starting to feel a little uh, something going on in my throat. So here we go. Uh, it's just before Christmas, I wanted to tell you this. Uh, before Christmas, because I spent a fair amount of time on airplanes, and uh, uh, I don't like to necessarily watch the in-flight movies, so I, uh, I wanted I wanted to get myself a nice big fat book to read. And my uh, my the, the the Christmas before, my mom had bought my brother-in-law Bob uh, Stephen King's book, which had just come out, called Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three. Now, those of you who know me and are regular listeners know I love time travel stories, and this has a huge time travel component in it. Some of the uh, the uh, not to ruin it for you, but the the main sort of uh, thrust of the book is someone wants to travel back in time and prevent the Kennedy assassination by stopping Lee Harvey Oswald. Okay, so I'm in a, a hotel in Inglewood, California, not too far from LAX, and I've got the book on my nightstand, and I've got this guy coming over. Uh, that I'm going to interview for season three of the TV show, the conspiracy show, and and he's going to talk to me about uh, um, MLK's assassination. We're doing an episode on uh, Martin Luther King and the and the framing of James Earl Ray, and also uh, JFK. We're doing a JFK episode. First thing he says when he comes to the door, this is how perceptive and and and, and keen this guy's senses are. He just glances quickly to the left, sees eleven twenty two sixty three on the nightstand, and says, "Who's reading that?" And I said, I am? He said, why would you read that? That's total disinformation. And I, I hadn't even thought of that. Of course, Stephen King, you know, obviously is propping up the Oswald as a lone gunman theory in this book. But I I just bought it because love time travel. And, uh, you know, I, I just need good pulp fiction to get me through those flights. Anyway, that was my introduction uh, to my first guest tonight. And uh, James DiEugenio is with us. He's the co-founder of two organizations, the Citizens for Truth about the Kennedy assassination and the Coalition on Political Assassinations, and was co-editor of The Assassinations, a book on the deaths of JFK, MLK, Robert Kennedy, and Malcolm X. This should be in everybody's library. 
He's also the co-author of the recently uh, published, it's not just a second edition, it's it's almost a complete rewrite. It's a heavily revised uh, re-release of a book that came out 20, over 20 years ago, Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case. And it's a great pleasure to have James DiEugenio on The Conspiracy Show. Jim, how are you? Okay, fine. Do you remember when you saw that book on my nightstand? Yes. <laughs> uh, anyway. Yes, and I remember, and one of the reasons that uh, I was um, really kind of um, upset about it is that if you read the afterword to King's book, he makes a big deal about you have to follow the rifle. And if you remember, I demonstrated to you in your hotel room that day that if you follow the rifle, it does not lead to Lee Harvey Oswald. No, you had, I, listen, this was a real education, Jim. Not that I ever believed Oswald was a gunman, but as a, you know, not to belabor the point, I bought the book because I love time travel. Anyway, uh, and we can get into a whole discussion, I suppose, at some point. We should point out, this is part one. We're going to do a, a second hour on this. This There's so much information here, and, and a lot of people saying, maybe to themselves, geez, I thought, you know, everything about the JFK uh, assassination is already known. It's out there. Uh, but you've really uncovered um, uh, th- through the declassification process. Maybe let's start there. Uh, you know, why why um, you know revisit this material 20 years later? There's this declassification process you've been involved with. It's uncovered a lot of documents, new documents. Tell me about that. Well, my first version of this book came out, like you said, over 20 years ago, and this was before the creation of the ARB, which is the Assassinations Record Review Board, which went to work in around 1994 and stayed at work for about four years declassifying two million pages of new documents on the Kennedy case. Now, if you know anything about this case, previously, before the ARB, there were two million pages of documents at the National Archives. So they had to make a whole new archive at the University of Maryland called National Archives 2 to put in all these new documents, all right? And in my opinion, in my opinion, they kind of revolutionized the subject matter that I had chosen to write about, okay? And so I felt like my first book was kind of an okay effort, but... It was really kind of, how to say this, it was really kind of um, not current. It was really too traditional in its, in its repetition of facts because all the new facts that had now been declassified by the ARB kind of, in my opinion, changed the calculus of the whole Kennedy assassination, especially the aspect that I was looking at which was what happened in New Orleans uh, with Oswald in the summer of 1963, and what happened to the investigation of Jim Garrison, which started in 1966, and then the result of what happened to him, you know, uh, in in the years 69 through 73, and what happened to the House Select Committee on Assassinations. And then the last part of the book is about the reversal of JFK's foreign policy forays by Lyndon Johnson. 
And I, I like I wrote in the, this book could never have been written without the ARB. And in my opinion, in, in my honest opinion, and I've said this more than once, there's no point in writing another book on the Kennedy assassination if you don't use these new documents. There really isn't. Right. Because right. it's sort of like night and day, you know, before and after. James so Eugenio. I, and you're, at, you're exactly right, by the way. You know, it's not correct to call it a second edition. No. It's, it's actually a 90% rewritten volume. Okay? It's actually really another book, I would say. James D. Eugenio, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba, and the Garrison Case. This is part one of a, of a, a second, a two-parter. And, uh, Jim, I think you're going to come back next week. We're going to do another hour. So what I thought we could do is tonight is, is focus on um, we really need to set the stage in terms of the, the climate, the foreign policy climate. We have to back up uh, before Kennedy even you know, was a senator. We have to back up to the end of the Second World War. Talk about the climate, the, the, uh, the emergence of the United States as a superpower after Britain sort of, you know, they're basically bust after the Second World War. So they've got to hand this over to the, the, this mantle over to the United States. Then we see the emergence of this, you know, national security state, the, uh, the, the evolution of the CIA. We'll get into that. And then we'll see, you know, where Kennedy finds himself uh, when he assumes office and how ultimately, as you point out in this book, Destiny Betrayed, how his foreign policy, his, his, his philosophies and how they change in terms of the Cold War, how those philosophies would mark him for death. So let's let's start really I guess the uh, the end of the second world war. Let's let's talk about the emergence of this national security state that the United States would become. All right. Um that's actually where I begin the book, all right? And what happened of course as you just mentioned is that after 1945 um with the all the expenditures that England had made on World War II, that the country was essentially sapped and bankrupted and could not even hold on to its colonial empire anymore. And so they sent an envoy to see Secretary of State George Marshall, and Marshall wasn't in, so they met with Dean Acheson, the acting secretary, and essentially told them this. You know, we're in no position, you know, to continue our leadership of the West, you know, now, so we're going to go ahead and make it clear that we expect you guys to go ahead and pick up the mantle, which, of course, is what happened. The United States now became um, the leader of the Western world, and against this new threat, which had been, which was perceived uh, even before the end of World War II, you know, which of course was the Soviet Union. All right, because when, once Roosevelt passed away. And Truman stepped in. Truman was not anywhere near the kind of sophisticate on the on foreign affairs that FDR was. So immediately, what happened is that in a space of two years, the Cold War was essentially set in stone, and you had the mapping out of not just the United States versus the Soviet Union, but you had these alliances set in place like NATO, you know, and on one side and the Warsaw Pact on the other, and you had economic alliances, you know, like Cinecom on, on, the, on the eastern side, 
you know, in the European free market on, on, on the Western side, you know, and they were actually beginning to draw maps, of course, you know, you know, red for the curtains behind, the countries behind the so-called Iron Curtain and blue, the countries on the west of that. And so you eventually had the creation of the CIA as the capstone of this, all right? And, and once the CIA was put into place, there was this clause in the National Security Act that ended up being a Pandora's box that allowed the use of what came to be called covert action, you know, against whoever the perceived enemy was. Okay, let's just hold it there, James. We'll take a timeout. We'll come back. We'll talk about the CIA and how they recruited several key members of of Hitler's intelligence uh, regime in Eastern Europe, Reinhard Galen and others. James DiEugenio, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case, Part 1, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Hospital sources gave this report of the arrival at the emergency entrance to the hospital, and I quote from the hospital, The president was lying motionless in the car. Mrs. Kennedy was leaning over him, holding him. Governor Connolly was leaning back in the seat, holding his stomach. Both men were covered with blood. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Welcome back. If you think you know everything there is to know about the JFK assassination, think again. James D. Eugenio is here with a heavily revised... Uh, or rewrite, really, of his um, his book, Destiny Betrayed, JFK, Cuba, and the Garrison Case, uh, heavily reworked because of uh, new documents that have come to light that were declassified. And uh, this is the first of a two-parter. Now, James, let's talk. we have to talk about the Dulles boys. We have uh, John Foster Dulles, of course, Secretary of State under uh, Eisenhower, during the Eisenhower administration. His younger brother, Alan, uh, would become head of the CIA, the longest-serving member of the CIA. Now, Dulles uh, was instrumental in recruiting key Nazis to, to basically uh, run the CIA, or is that an overstatement? Uh, well, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad you brought that up, because if you take a look at Alan Dulles's career, there's probably nobody, no one, who influenced the course of the Central Intelligence Agency more than he did. And it was him and John McCloy, who later served, both served in the Warren Commission, who recruited this Nazi named Reinhard Galen, um, who was captured at the end of World War II when Dulles was the head of station in Berlin. All right, he specifically made orders not to shoot Galen, okay, because he wanted to incorporate his uh, spy apparatus into what he knew would eventually become the Central Intelligence Agency. Then when John McCloy became the commissioner, the high commissioner in West Germany, it was him who actually okayed this deal and made it a part of West German culture. And Reinhard Galen ended up making quite a lot of money off this. I think the figure was the CIA gave him an annual check of about $5 million a year. This is 1949. Yeah, that which was a hell of a lot of money back then. A lot okay. of money now. Well, it's a lot of money now, but it was even more back then. I would be surprised if it was more like fifteen or twenty million dollars back then, you know. And so, this was the beginning, of course, if you ask me, and if you ask a lot of other people, of the fixing of intelligence 
against the Soviet Union to always make it appear that the Soviet threat was much larger and more serious than it always than it than it really was. Which of course, and I explain in the book why Dulles would want this to happen because not too many people understand his background as a longtime State Department officer, intelligence officer, but also he worked for this giant corporate law firm out of New York City, which his brother was the managing partner of, Sullivan and Cromwell. All right. And Sullivan and Cromwell was one of the largest corporate law firms in the world. It's by the way, it still is, you know, in the world. And so they essentially served the interests of these, you know, like General Electric, you know, like the oil, the oil companies, okay, et cetera, things like that. And they did their bidding not only in America, but throughout the world. And I mention a part of, in the part of the book where Alan Dulles actually rigged these elections in South America for the Mellon family, the big banking family out of Pittsburgh, okay, to make sure that, that this new incoming government, which was a threat, would not go ahead and, you know, try and nationalize the, own, the ownership values that the Mellons had there. And, of course, once Alan Dulles then becomes director of the CIA, which is under his brother, he completely revolutionizes the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, which, of course, a lot of people had regrets about this, about what he did, including Harry Truman, which I, we'll get to that story later. So now the CIA under Ellen Dulles became a, what's the best way to explain it, a kind of coup d'etat machine. Right, right? they're guns for hire for corporate America. Right, exactly. And, and, and the most, two most famous examples, of course, are what happened in Iran in 1953 and then in Guatemala in 1954, where in 1953, Dulles was serving the interests of the oil companies. In 1954, he was serving the interests of United Fruit, you know, in Guatemala. Right. But so they're yeah, fighting these... The only ones, of course. He so... tried to uh, overthrow the government of Indonesia in in 1957 you know he put a contract out on patrice lumumba in 1960 in the congo and of course it was alan dulles and his brother who made sure that once the french left vietnam that ho chi minh would not be allowed to come in and take over and unify the country which had been agreed upon at the geneva conference in 1954 they went ahead and made sure that the Central Intelligence Agency, under a famous covert operator, Edward Lansdale, found a substitute in Ngo Dinh Diem, and they propped him up in South Vietnam okay, as this so-called leader of South Vietnam. And this, of course, was the beginning of the second civil war in Vietnam after World War II. So James, if I could just summarize here. Brothers. So if I could just summarize here. So is the CIA is running around uh, engaged in all these covert operations and uh, you know m most people Mr. and Mrs. Front Porch thinking God bless them they're keeping America f you know safe from communists. But really what they were doing was keeping the world safe for corporate America and their and their their multinationals. But the, you know this this so this Soviet threat because you know the it, it was being perceived, I guess, through the eyes of these former Nazis. 
I don't know if you can even call them former Nazis, that were, that were, you know, installed into this national security state apparatus in the United States. Obviously, they're going to perceive the threat. They're going to inflate, you know, the threat because Nazis, communists, don't get along. Uh, yeah, so right. is that a fair a fair summation of what, of what yeah, we're talking about? I, I think there's a lot of accuracy in that. I think that a lot of the things that the Dulles brothers cloaked as being done in the name of anti-communism was really being done in the name of corporate American corporate hegemony in the third world. I mean, I don't think anybody could say that Mossadegh, the guy that was overthrown in Iran, right. was a communist. You know, and I don't think you could say that about our Benz either. You know, right? Or Allende. Or Allende. Yeah. Going I, further. I agree. Yeah. See, what these guys were were nationalists. Okay, they wanted to keep the resources of their countries more for their own people. But if that was going to happen, that meant that companies like United Fruit and like these oil companies in Iran were going to get a much larger, less less sizable part of the pie. And that's what then they didn't want to do that. They didn't want to settle for that. No. Flash okay. forward to Cuba. Flash forward to Cuba, 1959. And, 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 uh, you know, Batista, uh, horrible, horrible uh, dictator. And, uh, uh, I mean, even the, even the, the, uh, the Eisenhower administration recognized that, you know, this guy had to go. But, but, uh, Castro originally didn't come across as, unless he, you know, was, was just lying through his teeth, he didn't come across like a communist. I mean, he, again, he was a nationalist, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And in fact, the, um, the, uh, the White House and the State Department were rather kind of late in recognizing who he and Che Guevara really were. Now, in this particular case of Cuba, it, it's, they, these guys were communists, okay? You know, they, Che Guevara, and they were at first nationalists when they got rid of Batista, but then they slowly gravitate, well, not really slowly, Che Guevara was really a communist from the get-go. It was Castro who, in about a year or two, turned into a communist. But this is, and I, this is what I talk about in my book. But that's because when he came to the United States, the powers that be in the State Department wanted him to go along with the World Bank and IMF stuff. Now, if anybody knows anything about the way the World Bank works and the International Monetary Fund, and I think um, if you've read that book by John Perkins, Confessions yes. of an Economic Hitman. I've had John on, yeah. Yeah, okay. Do you understand the way that works? The way that works is they get you so much in debt to them that they then go ahead and put an austerity program in effect in your country, which lowers the standard of living for, for everybody. So when Castro got a load of this, you know, he understood that he was going to have to, A, get rid of the American imperialism inside of Cuba and form a kind of treaty with the Soviet Union. So he started nationalizing so exactly cattle exactly ranches. and Yeah, he started taking in over. In the space of a year. And so in, 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 in a sense, he was forced into the Soviet, uh, uh, into the, Soviet, uh, into the arms of the Soviets. He had, he had a little yeah, choice. I, I, think, I, I think you could make that argument. 
Although, like I said, in this case, I think you could say, you know, they, they were really more or less socialist or communist to begin with. But Castro, at least, was willing to talk to the United States. Okay. But Eisenhower and Dulles did not want to talk to him. And then when he started making these programs to confiscate uh, the American interests in Cuba and paying only what the book price was, that's an important part of my book. See, Castro was going to nationalize these, these properties at the book price. The problem was that these companies had all understated the value of their property to dodge taxes. Okay? So, in other words, Castro was going to essentially beat them at their them own game. Their own petard. Right, right. Knowing that they had lied about the value of the properties, he was going to go ahead and pay them the book value. So, they didn't like that. <laughs> James D. Eugenio. It was okay for them to cheat sure. the Cuban government, but it wasn't okay for the Cuban government to turn it around on them. James D. Eugenio, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case. Okay, so we've sort of set the stage, albeit in a very hurried fashion. Uh, you know, the, the, the emergence of the United States as the superpower after Britain hands over that mantle post-Second World War, the emergence of the CIA and the national security state apparatus, which included uh, former high-ranking Nazi intelligence officials like Reinhard Galen, uh, and... Then along comes Jack Kennedy, who ha was also, you know, very uh, anti uh, anti communist. I mean, he uh, in his in that Nixon debate, uh, you know, Nixon talked about the Democrats losing China, and and Kennedy shot back, "Well, you lost, you know, uh, an island just ninety miles offshore." Kennedy campaigned as a Cold War warrior. I think many people that don't know their history might be surprised by that. You obviously read my book, and you, you understand that Kennedy understood um, what he had to say in public, okay? And he also understood, because he was educated on this quite a long time ago, that the United States was doing some really bad things in the third world. And in the book, what I do is relate what I believe is probably the most, the most important event in understanding who John Kennedy really was, was his trip to Southeast Asia in 1951. Because he wanted, he was planning on running for the Senate the next year. And so he understood he had to get educated about foreign policy. So he went to Southeast Asia and he landed in Saigon and he deliberately ditched the French emissaries who were there to meet him because he wanted to get the true picture of what was really happening. So he wandered around, you know, knocking on doors, you know, until the wee hours of the morning, finding, trying to find the best reporters and the people who had the best reputation in the State Department. And he finally meets a guy named Edmund Gullion. And you don't know who John Kennedy really was unless you understand this meeting, okay? Because this literally changed... Kennedy's whole perspective on communism in the third world, all right? Because he simply he asked him, he says, you know, can the French win the war? And Goulian says, the French will never win this war. Okay, and he says, well, why? Because the French will never win this war because this war is not about communism versus democracy. This war is a war of national liberation, okay? And Ho Chi Minh had galvanized 
the imaginations and the hearts and minds of so many young men throughout Vietnam that they were willing to die rather than go back under French colonialism. All right? And the French could never win that kind of war. They could never win a war of attrition because they would lose the support of the home front. They would never be able to convince the average Parisian that it was worth it to go into the jungles of South Vietnam, you know, and fight against these people who only wanted their country to be free. All right. We're starting to see the emergence of John F. Kennedy's uh, philosophies regarding a foreign policy, which may have marked him for death 12 years later. James D. Eugenio with us. Destiny betrayed JFK Cuban, the garrison case. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. And both are necessary. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. One of the uh, the luxuries of late-night long-form radio is it gives you the opportunity to really drill down, and that's what we're doing right now with James D. Eugenio, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba, and the Garrison Case. And, and this is the first of a two-parter. And next week in that hour, yes, we'll get into uh, into uh, Oswald, and we'll talk about uh, you know what happened to Oswald in New Orleans, and we'll, uh, eventually we'll talk about the Warren Commission and all of these things that are so obviously important uh, to the JFK assassination, uh, JFK assassination research. But we're laying the groundwork right now with James D. Eugenio and talking about the climate, the foreign policy, the national security state that was emerging in the U.S. These were the conditions that existed as JFK came to power in uh, in January of 1961. So so let's talk about uh, Cuba for a moment, James, and what happened just before Jack came to office, the the the, uh, the Bay of Pigs invasion that was planned during the Eisenhower years. What was that all about? By the end of 1959, in the early part of 1960, Eisenhower had a series of meetings in the White House. These were interagency meetings, which included the State Department, the CIA, the White House, the representatives from the American Embassy in Havana, Etc. And they decided that there was no living with Castro. So the embargo went on against Cuba, and they began to plan a series of exfiltration and infiltration operations to destabilize Cuba, that is to recruit people who did not like Castro coming into the United States. And they also began to plan paramilitary action which was supposed to culminate in an invasion of Cuba. Eisenhower wanted the political arm of what was what he imagined was going to be this new government established very strongly in exile, okay, before he went ahead and gave the okay to any kind of invasion. All right. Well, this was not done. Okay, that part was not done. All right. And the action officer in the White House for the what was going to be this invasion was Richard Nixon. Okay, now Nixon had always planned that the invasion was going to happen before the election, and he was going to ride this, you know, to victory. All right. Well, it didn't happen because Eisenhower didn't okay it. All right. So, to everybody's shock and surprise, Kennedy wins this very narrow victory by about a hundred thousand votes in the election, all right? And so now, now, 
this culminating project of Eisenhower's plan, the so-called Bay of Pigs invasion, is now in Kennedy's administration. Okay? Now, and this, by the way, I really believe, I think this is chapter three of my books, and it's called Bay of Pigs, Kennedy versus Dulles. I'm very, very proud of this chapter because I really don't think that anybody has done a better job in a short version of summarizing the Bay of Pigs invasion and how it, how it went down, how it was planned, how it led to this falling out between Kennedy and the CIA, and especially between Dulles and Kennedy, in a short version as I have. There's been a lot of stuff declassified on the Bay of Pigs, all right, and I used it in this chapter. To put this in a nutshell, I think I spend about 22 pages on it, you know, in the book. To put this in a nutshell, Dulles and Bissell, that is the two guys in the CIA who were running the operation, understood from a very early date that Kennedy didn't really like it, okay? It really wasn't his cup of tea, all right? And Kennedy actually changed the operation. See, this is what happened. Once Kennedy took office, Bissell and Dulles—excuse me, Bissell and Dulles—changed the operation from a commando type of infiltration operation to a large strike force kind of operation. All right, they didn't think the original plan was going to work, and the reason they didn't think it was going to work is Castro had rounded up all the renegade people inside of Cuba by 1961. So there really wasn't anything for them to hook up with. So they changed it to a much larger operation, okay, that was going to be a strike force kind of thing that needed air support to succeed, all right? Well, they understood that Kennedy really didn't like this idea. He changed it once, okay, and they – and there's no – there's really no way around this. There's really no way around this. They lied to him about two very important points. They lied to him about the amount of air support that the operation was going to need, and they lied to him about the hope of going guerrilla if the strike force did not succeed at first. All right, Jim, i got to jump right. in here. We'll take a timeout, come back, and we'll continue with the Bay of Pigs, Destiny Betrayed, James DiEugenio, The Conspiracy Show. Curiosity? Or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. James D. Eugenio, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case, a second edition which is really just a heavily revised edition 20 years after uh, it was first published. We're talking about the Bay of Pigs. Kennedy, from what I understand, tell me if I'm wrong, wasn't necessarily against overthrowing uh, Castro and replacing him, but he just didn't want American fingerprints on this operation. He didn't want it coming back having it known that the U.S. was fomenting this. This is what he objected to. He did not want any kind of overt American presence involved. He believed that the United States did have the right to support dissident parts of foreign countries who were trying to overthrow communism. But he didn't believe that the United States itself should use its own forces in which you do this. Now, see, the, and this was the difference between Dulles and him. 
Okay, and that's why I call this chapter Kennedy versus Dulles. Okay, because Kennedy had this education from Edmund Gullion. You know, he was sensitive to what the United States had done in the Third World, where Dulles just didn't care. You know, it didn't matter to him if it was really America overthrowing this regime. Okay, it didn't matter to him at all. And by the way, I should also say this, it didn't matter to Nixon either. Because when Kennedy called up Nixon when the operation was failing, he asked him what he would have done if it would have been him. He goes, well, I would have declared that we had a beachhead and I would have sent in the, the Navy. Well, see, the problem is the Cuban exiles never established a beachhead or anything close to it. So this ended up being a disaster all the way around. And when the CIA tried to get Kennedy to commit American air power, he wouldn't do it. Okay, And he wouldn't send in the Navy either all right, to save the day. So when Castor was able to get his artillery and his tanks to the front, it essentially just crushed this 1,500-man force in a matter of less than 72 hours. Okay, And so Kennedy did something in the wake of the Bay of Pigs that really today is kind of hard to believe especially when you think back to what George W. Bush did, okay, in the wake of the 9-11 tragedy, all right, in which, to my knowledge, nobody got fired. Nobody in the FBI, nobody in the CIA got fired, and there should have been, all right. Well, Kennedy, there were two investigations of what happened, one in the CIA and one in the White House. The one in the CIA was done by Inspector General Lyman Kirkpatrick, and the one in the White House was done by General Maxwell Taylor, all right? The one in the White House, Bobby Kennedy was on, all right? And so I detail the results of both those investigations. And Kennedy came to see that he had essentially been duped, that Dulles knew that this operation was never going to succeed on its own. And he was banking that Kennedy, instead of going through this humiliation, both personal and national, okay, that he would go ahead and commit American forces, even though he had said like five days before the invasion in public that he wasn't going to do it. All right? So when Kennedy didn't do this, the operation collapsed. All right? And so Kennedy found out, through the results of both investigations, that he had been tricked, that Dulles and Bissell had this secret agenda. To what extent, Jim, so, do you think Kennedy's refusal to commit U.S. forces to the invasion, uh, to what extent did that seal his fate in Dallas? Oh, I think it's very important, because at the end of this chapter, chapter three, you know, I go ahead and outline how Dulles hit back. Once Kennedy fired him over this, Dulles and Howard Hunt hit back at Kennedy in this famous article in Fortune magazine, where instead of, instead of admitting that they had tried to trick Kennedy, they tried to blame the failure for the operation on him by saying that he had canceled the so-called D-Day airstrikes, and that had blown the operation. And I'm, I'm, I don't know if you read this chapter, 
but I was very careful to show that there was no such thing as a D-Day airstrikes. That if there were going to be any D-Day airstrikes, that is, the dawn of the invasion, jet fighters were going to come in and knock out Castro's Air Force. Kennedy made it very clear that those were going to be launched from inside Cuba only if the exiles established a beachhead. He didn't want them flown from Central America. And he didn't want American pilots flying them. Okay? Well, since there was no beachhead, there were no D-Day airstrikes. But this is what they used against him to blame it on him. And they got this writer for Fortune magazine, Charles Murphy, who conferred with Howard Hunt and Alan Dulles, and then he ghost-wrote this article that was really supplied by Hunt and Dulles. And this is what then inflamed both the upper classes and the Cuban exiles into believing that it was really Kennedy who was at fault for this. And as I note at the end of the chapter, I don't think it's a coincidence that some of these Cubans ended up being in Dallas that day. Mm. Mm-hmm. All right, And one of them, Bernardo de Torres, was disguised as a reporter and reportedly had pictures of Kennedy's assassination in a safe deposit box that Life magazine wanted to pay him for, but he wouldn't give them to him. Or that Sergio Arcacha Smith had diagrams of the source system under Dealey Plaza, or David Phillips, who recruited a lot of these Cubans, on his deathbed, finally admitted to his brother that he was in Dallas that day. And Howard Hunt, as everyone knows Mm -hmm. from Mark Lane's book, Plausible Denial, never could find an alibi for where he really was. On November 22nd, 1963. Nor could so Richard I Nixon. the Bay of Pigs is very important. Nor could Richard in, Nixon. I'm <laughs> saying nor could Richard Nixon, James. I remember right, him being true. asked years, where were you? He, I he, don't he, remember. Stories. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but, and, and after this fiasco of the Bay of Pigs, uh, there was a, an exchange, they, uh, Castro handed over uh, some, 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 some prisoners in exchange for, the U.S. sent over baby formula and, and, and things that the, the Cubans were in dire need of. What, this was all now being perceived then that, at this point, that, what, Kennedy is soft on communism, he's pro-Castro. Is that how it was being played up by Dulles and the others? Well, see, number one, Kennedy had, if Kennedy was going to get rid of Castro, he had the fir- perfect opportunity to bad pigs. Number two, if he didn't want to do it then, he had another perfect opportunity to missile crisis in October of 1962, when everybody was telling him to go ahead and bomb and invade the island to get rid of these missiles. Okay? You know, well, he didn't do it then either. So instead, what did he do? Mongoose. As, as, well, Mongoose was, was, was ended by the missile crisis. Okay? Mongoose was this eight-month program of uh, infiltration and covert operations, okay, to kind of do a double-track system with Castro. All right, it was not very successful. As I outline in my book, you know, Lansdale was never able to get any results, okay? And then along came the missile crisis, and right after the missile crisis, Kennedy pulled the plug on Mongoose. I think it was November the 29th, okay, that, that he pulled the plug on Mongoose because he had made this deal with Castro. That, and then the Russians, 
that there would not be any more attacks on Cuba from mainland United States. So these operations were either cut off or they were moved into Central America. All right. And then, as you mentioned, during this prisoner exchange, which I think was in December of 1962, Kennedy gets word that Castro, because of his falling out with Khrushchev, Castro really didn't like the way Khrushchev negotiated over his head with Kennedy about the resolution of the missile crisis. Castro was ready to talk about getting some kind of dialogue going between the United States and Cuba headed for a normalization of relations. So this is what began this famous back channel. Okay, So now, as you can see, in the space of three years, Kennedy has completely reversed the Eisenhower-Dulles policy on Cuba. Now he's talking about negotiating with Castro to actually normalize relations with this communist. And these negotiations went on for months, and they were not really fully disclosed. I mean, John Donnell, who was the last guy, wrote two articles in the New Republic about the last leg of the negotiations. But it wasn't until the church committee interviewed William Atwood that, and he was the first guy who began to talk about to, to Castro about normalization through Carlos Lechuga, who was a Cuban ambassador in New York City. All right, He was the first guy to establish his back channel that we began to get the whole full picture. These negotiations went on for about 11 months All right, through people like Atwood, to people like ABC reporter Lisa Howard, and the last leg was by John Donnell, the French uh, journalist who Atwood recommended. And they were actually talking about Atwood going down to Cuba, landing in Mexico City, all right, and then meeting somebody and flying into Cuba, all right, secretly, in order to begin the agenda you know, going ahead and negotiating terms for a recognition of Cuba. Now, now, let, let, now let's, really, let's really think about this, okay? Three years earlier, Eisenhower and Dulles had essentially declared war on Cuba. There was no living with Castro, okay? The CIA had various assassination plots to kill him, which I outline in the book, all right? Now, three years later, okay, Kennedy is actually talking about reversing that policy. Now, as I write in the book, when Danielle arrived in Havana and he told Castro, Kennedy's last message, Castro was overjoyed. He said, finally comes an American president, you know, who has the interests, you know, of the working class people in mind. All right. Kennedy will now go down in history as the greatest president since Lincoln. And they spent three days together celebrating. And then on November 22, 1963, Castro, they, they hear the news on the radio. Kennedy has been shot in Dallas. And Castro completely collapses. And he says, this is bad news. And he says this three times. All right, listen, Jim, this is a phone call. This About is, a half hour later, okay. Kennedy's dead, and he turns to Danielle, and he says, everything has now changed. Everything has changed indeed. Listen, this is a good place to leave it till next week. 
I think we've okay. set the stage nicely. James D. Eugenia will be back whenever you hear this show next week. Jim will be our first order of business. Part two, Destiny Betrayed, JFK Cuba and the Garrison Case. Thank you for this, uh, Jim, and uh, we'll head into Dallas next week. Okay, I'll talk to you next week. All right, James D. Eugenio. You can follow The Conspiracy Show at theportalrichardserrett.com. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett.